The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. We are broadcasting all the way from Margaret River and the Margaret River Readers and Writers Fest for 2021 down here in Noongar country in southwest western Australia. And all month we've been bringing you some of the best content that's been here at the festival. This is week three. Uh, we've got one more week to go for the festival. and uh, What a time it has been. Later in the show, we're going to be catching up with Robert Isaacs, the author of the memoir Two Cultures, One Story, and also Barry Davola, uh, who's got a new book out called Driving Steve Fracasso. First up, I get to catch up with a bit of a literary superstar in these parts, Craig Sylvie. Craig Sylvie grew up on an orchard in dwelling up Western Australia. He now lives in Fremantle, where at the age of 19, he wrote his first novel, Rhubarb, published by Fremantle Press in 2004. In 2005, Rhubarb was chosen as the one book for the Perth International Writers' Festival and was included in the National Books Alive campaign. Sylvie also received the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist Award. In 2007, Sylvie released The World According to Warren, a picture book affectionately starring the guide dog from Rhubarb. In early 2008, he completed his second novel, Jasper Jones, with the aid of an Australia Council New Work grant. Outside of literature, Sylvie is a singer-songwriter for the band Nancy Sykes. And his new novel, Honeybee, is out right now. Craig Sylvie, thank you so much for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage, my final interview. Best of last. I know, exactly. And huge congratulations on your massive sold-out event. I couldn't make it, unfortunately, because I was prepping for this. But it seemed like it was pretty good. You had a long queue at the, the bookstore there. So that's always good. It's always a good sign. It is. Yeah. It is. And a huge congratulations on what we're here to talk today about Honeybee, your new novel. It seems to be doing incredibly well. Is that fair to say? That's the impression I'm trying to give people, yeah. Okay, well, it's coming off. (laughs) Jasper Jones before it was massive. I mean, it sold over half a million copies. Does that create a bit of pressure for you when you're trying to follow up something like that that's got a huge, you know, been a huge success and people are on board with? Fortunately, enough time had elapsed uh, by the, uh, the stage I had come to commit Honeybee to the page that I wasn't thinking about publishing or, or the machinations of releasing a book at that stage. I could just focus in on the story itself and bringing it to life. But yes, I will say once the book had been printed mm-hmm. and the publicity schedule had been sent out and uh, you know I saw all these resources that have been poured towards the book um, that I started to feel some of that some of that pressure you know no one likes the notion of disappointing potentially hundreds of thousands of people Um, but I have to say that the response has been extraordinarily generous Um, it's 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 been one of the most amazing 
parts of my career actually uh, the last six months uh, wow. speaking to people about honeybee and, and hearing their responses has been really rewarding and that's something you enjoy like big events like this some writers find it a chore but what's your take on it it's certainly a skill that I've had to acquire mm -hmm. you know I'm more comfortable in solitude quietly getting work done um, but the opportunity to come and commune with readers mm -hmm. and speak with people and to see what kind of dialogue is emerging from the book itself mm -hmm. um, is really nourishing. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be a part of and it's, uh, it's a real privilege too. Mm -hmm. uh, so I love coming out to, to events, particularly regional events. Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the country and so I yeah. understand uh, how much visibility means. Mm -hmm. um, I understand how important these conversations are to be had out here as well um, so it's a real joy for me yeah it must be very gratifying I wanted to talk a little bit about the gaps between your books 2004 2009 Jasper Jones and then 2020 Honeybee why why is that uh, I'm just lazy <laughs> yeah that's fair enough yeah um, oh look Jasper Jones had a trajectory that I could never have anticipated you know it changed my life that, mm -hmm. that book um, I had the great fortune of touring it really across the world for, for two or three years um, until I just came to a point where I just had to stop and get creative work done again. Um, for a couple of years I spent uh, nibbling away at a manuscript mm -hmm. um, that has since been put in a, in a bottom drawer. Mm -hmm. um, and then the opportunity to write the screenplay for Jasper Jones mm -hmm. came about and so mm -hmm. I poured all my efforts into that. Mm -hmm. So that was a couple of years. And then I started work on Honeybee and mm -hmm. that manuscript took maybe two and a half to three years to cultivate. Um, and that's, in a nutshell, mm -hmm. 10 years of my life, frighteningly enough. Wow. Has yeah. there been any interest in Honeybee so far for the screen? Yes, we've just sold the option uh, to a producer. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so our, our intention at this moment is to develop it into a six-part TV miniseries. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and you're going to be a screenwriter. Right? Hopefully, yeah, yeah, that's that's the plan at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, their thoughts might change once they say they start <laughs> seeing the scripts. Um, but at this point, yeah, I'm, I'm writing episode outlines, um, working on the pilot at the moment, and then fingers mm -hmm. crossed, all the ducks align mm -hmm. and we can get financing and cast involved and uh, get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And which you prefer, novelist, screenwriter? I think in my heart I'm a novelist. Mm -hmm. It's just how I develop work and how I fundamentally create, I suppose. There's a rigidity to screenwriting that, for me, isn't conducive to exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I tend to do when I write screenplays, actually, is, is kind of write a novelized treatment, mm -hmm. which I then adapt uh, into a screenplay format. Mm -hmm. In terms of what I prefer, it's difficult because, you know, I have to say that being on the set of Jasper Jones with all these moving parts, 60 or 70 crew members, incredible iconic actors bringing your characters to life on screen. Um, you know, a director like Rachel Perkins pouring her talents into your words. It's infectious mm -hmm. and it's a huge honor. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just an incredible thing to be a part of. So in the moment, nothing beats that, mm -hmm. uh, profound excitement of being on a film set. Mm -hmm. And would you work on something that wasn't yours? 
Well, do you have an idea you want to pitch? Is that, uh, is that what I'm here for? If we've yeah. got enough time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, of course. another TV show, like a staff writer? If a, if a, yeah, look, if the opportunity presented, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's taken a while, but I've come to love collaborating. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a real joy to, to assemble a story together and, and to argue for ideas. You know, a novelist is in solitude for much of their yeah. professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be really exciting to, to develop work together. But yeah, I'm open for all possibilities. Yeah. And what do you have in mind for your next novel? Uh, Anything? I, I will be working on a book for younger readers, actually, um, mm-hmm. which is attached to a, to a screen project I'm working on at the moment. I can't reveal too much about it, but um, it will be, again, a big departure from uh, Honeybee or Jasper mm-hmm. Jones before it. And then I have a longer form novel that I'm sort of developing in the back of my mind at the moment. But for the minute, uh, I'll be working on, well, touring this book for mm-hmm. the remainder of this year, depending on, you know, interest <laughs> yep. uh, and then and then straight into the the series adaptation yeah and you grew up in dwelling up that's is, right is this a place you know well margaret river the southwest mm-hmm. sort of in my blood you know i i feel very welcome down here the landscape the people the community is very familiar to me mm-hmm. i always feel like i'm at home when i'm in the southwest so uh yeah no it's it's my favorite place mm. in the world and you live in Fremantle, no. I was talking to a friend last week about all the writers that live in Fremantle. You know, yourself, Tim Winton, uh, David Rush Wilson, Ben Elton, Julian, uh, there's Julian O'Shaughnessy. There's probably ones I'm missing. For our listeners who haven't been there, what's the attraction with, with Fremantle as an artist? Fremantle is like a big creative village, I suppose. You know, we don't commune all that often mm-hmm. uh, as writers, but there's just something about the place which offers or affords you the opportunity to think differently, I think. Um, it doesn't have a suburban feel to it. The moment you, uh, you drive down into Fremantle, it feels historic. It feels different and it feels like uh, you, you can make decisions that are outside the box, I suppose. So I always mm-hmm. responded to that when I was a kid. Um, and you know, I grew up in the country mm-hmm. and it was always the place that I felt I'd be really welcomed. Yeah, right. Uh, so, and, and I knew that, that artists did good work there. Mm-hmm. And so it was just the place that I, I felt intuitively I, I could base myself and, and get good work done. Mm-hmm. And I never left. Great. Craig Sylvie, thank you so much for talking to me today on the back of your sold out show and all that signing as well. Your latest book, Honey Bee, is out now via Alan and Unwin. Can I put you on the spot and ask if you've got a song choice you'd like? Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind. Excellent choice. Craig, thank you so much. My pleasure. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Said in Georgia, 
You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network. And my next guest is Dr. Robert Isaacs. Now, Robert Isaacs is a highly respected Aboriginal elder from the Bibelmum Noongar language group. He has dedicated his life to breaking down cultural barriers and improving the lives of disadvantaged people. Career highlights include establishing the first Aboriginal medical service and associated dental, rehabilitation and healthcare clinics, negotiating the first land use and mining royalties arrangement, improving relations between Aboriginals and the justice system, assisting in establishing Clontarf Aboriginal College and leading groundbreaking housing initiatives. Robert has been the recipient of numerous awards, including Member of the Order of Australia on the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2016, NADOC Male Elder 2016, West Australian of the Year 2015, and Freeman to the City of Gosnells in 2015. He now continues his community work through board appointments, ambassadorships, and his work as a Justice of the Peace, along with his speaking engagements. Dr. Robert Isaacs, thank you so much for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage. You're staying in the room next to us, and I almost feel like we're neighbours now. We are neighbours, but the only thing about that is I heard someone snoring uh, upstairs. Not me. You don't know who that was. No, no, no. It must have been my roommate. (laughs) Don't put that that in there. (laughs) You're from this neck of the woods, is that right? Your family? Family history goes back to 1876. Wow. Great-grandfather Samuel Ebel Isaacs. Wow. But you live up in Broome. Yeah, I live in Broome now, but I always lived uh, in, uh, in Perth. Uh, yep. raised up in Perth, but my connections to this country uh, goes back to great-grandfather's uh, time, 1876, Margaret River and Bustleton and Bunbury. Wow. And that, my relations and cousins and that, when I found found the family, yeah, uh-huh. that's where the Isaacs uh, 
name and family started. Yeah, and yeah. I'm very proud of um, the, of uh, not only great grandfather of the Isaac's achievements. Yeah, in, in those days, yeah. um, um, battling the old native welfare days of policies and, uh, and upbringings and that sort of thing. You know, but I, uh, I was able to research all that and learn about about my mob and the family fantastic. and the culture and heritage we call it. Yeah, and you're in Broome, and you drove here. I drove down. I've been travelling since. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sunday, uh, Broome is 2,400 k's from here, and um, so I'll be driving back, uh, so that'll be another 2,000. At the wow. end of the day, it'll be over 4,000 k's. I love driving, mm-hmm. and I uh, like to see the bush, because we Aboriginal people are bush people too. Mm-hmm. We love the bush, and I like to see country, whether it's down here in the south, up in the gold fields, or the wheat belt area, and of course, as you go up right up to the Pilbara, uh, you've got to go through the field road to get to the Kimberleys, which is uh, Broome and Derby and up to Darwin. I would love to go one day. Congratulations on your memoir, Two Cultures, One Story. Truly remarkable book. When did you decide to tell your story? Is it something that you've always wanted to do? Yeah, well, what, what happened was uh, my auntie, um, Elizabeth Isaacs, was running a soup kitchen in, in Perth, mm-hmm. the main city of Perth, for the uh, homeless people. And I always used to go there uh, with my family and um, have uh, dinner. And uh, one day she uh, popped this question to me. He says to Clary, my, uh, Clary Isaacs, my cousin and myself, these young boys want to get down into Bustleton, Margaret Rev and do research of the Isaacs family. Now, Clary didn't uh, do that, but I took it upon myself to um, get some funding for the uh, cultural heritage people, uh, $4,000 in the uh, bicentennial year, mm-hmm. and I got a microphone and a uh, tape recorder, and uh, first I went to Bunbury and talked to the elders there, people who knew about uh, our family, the Isaacs, and then down into Bustleton mainly, and because a lot of the elders were born on the reserves here in south in the southwest back in the early 19th century 2030s and that sort of thing and they had a lot of, lot of knowledge about the history of uh, of uh, of this area yeah and sacred sites uh, sites mm-hmm. of, of significance and so on and the information that I was able to collate on those tapes um, were sent to the Batty library which uh, which uh, it's a Batty library here in WA which keeps history and cultures of stories telling and that sort of thing and I gave them those tapes but I kept copies of those tapes also which enabled me to start um, collating a file and a file upon file resumes that I've always kept and then uh, over the many years it was about what eight years ago someone walked into my office and says what are you doing with all these uh, files and sitting on my desk and I, you've got that much stuff there. And when, when that person looked at it, he says, you ought to write a, write a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so that prompted me to um, contact um, Tanaz Brahm, who was mm-hmm. the writer of, um, of, the, of the book. And that was eight years ago. And, and that's how it came about by Aunt Eliza, my auntie, saying, do the, go down and research the history of your, your mob. And, um, and then it came to a book. It mm-hmm. came to reality. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm here. <laughs> So you were part of the stolen generation, yeah. and it's very sad, a lot of the content in the book. What was it like for you looking back on your life? Was that hard for you? It was. It, it certainly was. Well, I was removed at the age of six months uh, from the uh, King Edward Hospital uh, by the Native Welfare people, 
and placed into the uh, orphanage, um, uh, Catholic nuns' orphanage in Subiaco, and uh, where little babies uh, uh, were uh, sent to and nursed by the Catholic nuns, the Sisters of St. Joseph. And as you got to the age of about four, uh, then you'd be moved on to uh, another institution. And these institutions were run by the Christian Brothers, the Catholic Order, you know, at Castle Deer Boys Home, that was known to be. And then as you got much older there, a little bit older, then they moved you on to Clontarf Boys Town, which was the major institution as you got older, up to 17 years of age. So all my 17 years I was in an institution, you know, um, 24-7 I call it, and not knowing that I, I had family. I didn't know if I had a mum, I didn't know if I had a dad, I didn't know brothers and sisters and so on. And, uh, and that's how it came to be. I was a loner, uh, I reckon. To me, I reckon my culture and my identity, my heritage was, um, was d deliberately taken from, from me uh, by government policy. Mm. Native welfare people would never come to the institution to see how a young boy like myself was progressing, whether it was in education, making, making sure that I was um, fed, uh, clothed and, and so on. So um, I, I went through uh, difficult times, you know, uh, because I did uh, I raised it with one of the brothers about, um, I was only about eight, and I said to this Christian brother, big, big, they were big men, had black habits, white collar, mm -hmm. and I said to him, um, Mr., and he says, you don't call me Mr., you call me brother, yeah? Hmm. And I said, I want to know where my, why I'm in this institution, I want to know where, if I have a mother, a father, whatever. His comments were, you don't bother me, and I won't bother you. Scat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was the, that was a, a neglect. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the behaviour of some of these orders. Uh, you know, like, see the Catholic Church. You know how, how uh, young boys and girls were were treated. You know, and some ter and I saw some terrible things happen. You know, uh, mm -hmm. all those years. You know, and a lot of the boys um, that were at these institutions came from overseas, also from England in the migration scheme in the fifties. Mm -hmm. uh, they came from Wales, Malta. Um, England, you name it, and they were told, that, and they were only four years of age, and they were shipped out, you know, and it took the ships about three or four months to hit Fremantle shores, and allocated, kids moved off to all different institutions uh, run by the, by the church and so on, and um, a lot of those boys ended up at Clontarf and Castle Deer. So there was 250 boys at, at Clontarf in those days, and um, I was one of the uh, eight Aboriginal boys that were there uh, out of 242, yeah, uh, and those numbers. But I still didn't even know about my identity, mm -hmm. about my Aboriginal identity, but I, I knew that, um, that I had dark skin, and I was, sometimes I was called a boom, yeah, and that sort of thing. It was a word used by, by people. And uh, it wasn't done deliberately, I think, but it was just mm -hmm. to make a, it was like a, just a, a, a comment, you could say, you know. And I don't think they really meant it, to be honest. But that was the behaviour that uh, uh, took place because I was a good in athletics, I was good in swimming, I was good in football, I was good in, in that. And I used to, in boxing, and I used to win my events. And I think that's what probably upset some of the some <laughs> of the boys, you know. And they were losers, and I was a winner, yeah, <laughs> and that sort of thing. So the 17 years, um, I got a, a good education. Uh, but the brothers, uh, there's one good thing about uh, about them. 
Uh, I'm, I'm also happy that I'm, I'm, I was brought up as a Catholic. Uh, my faith has put me in good steady all my life, even this very moment talking to you. Yeah, that I'm able to keep that and and and, uh, and say to God that uh, protect me this day, on, you know, whether it's in work or, or family and that sort of thing. So that's one good thing about the institutions. But um, but as I as I said. Um, uh, there were some people there that uh, they should not be in in the order. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, I don't know how they how they got them up and that sort of thing because they wanted to wear a habit, but they had too much power and too much authority over a child, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's very sad because, as we know today, in all schools, when something tr tragic happens, uh, there's psychologists, there's people who will go and counsel, you know, in, uh, in these schools today, mm -hmm. where in the in the days of the institution, we didn't have that, you know. And uh, and if you had if you had a broken arm, well, you go to hospital. Well, that, and that that had to be fixed. But the thing is that kids would be kids would be crying out, you know, for for counselling. They mm -hmm. couldn't cope with education. They didn't understand what algebra was about, and so on, you know. And yet they were punished for that, you know. They were sent up the front of the the classroom. Because they uh, couldn't answer the brother's question about why didn't you understand what one and one and two is or two and two and four, they used to wear their pants. You know? they, they were scared. They were shivering because they were going to be hurt. And I saw that day in and day out, and that's what upset me quite a bit. You know that I had to make sure that I didn't get myself mm. in that sort of situation. But I was punished because for, for no unknown reason, and because some of these men, I know that. The nuns and the brothers always had straps and mm -hmm. canes, you know, and in their, in their habits. But when it came to the physical side of it, where they use their fists, you know, and start smashing kids around the head and that sort of thing, you know, it is very sad and frightening. And we couldn't reach out to the authorities outside the institution, you know, like we used to call a word, a word called monk. And if you uh, left a college without telling, uh, the institution without telling them, and you copped it. Once the police brought you back, once they say, well, uh, we, we got that young boy, Isaac, we back to the institution, uh, you were punished. You know, you, you didn't have a meal that night. You, know, you didn't see pictures on the weekend. You were made to clean the toilet. You know, it, it was punishment at, at mm -hmm. its worst, you know. But the hitting and the hurting was really, really cruel. And that's why when the Julia Gillard the Prime Minister set up the, um, the you know, the sexual thing, you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, sexual, the Royal Commission. Yeah, yeah the Royal Commission yeah. into sexual abuse. Uh, that flushed out, as I'm concerned, a lot of stuff. And I was able to get an audience with one of the commissioners to tell my what what, what happened with me as a young boy at uh, Castle Deer, and um, and we then I, I knew who, the, who that brother was. And um, and he was a uh, it was a common theme of that one with that with that brother with other boys and that mm, sort of thing you know right. so uh, I'm glad that was flushed out and um, and, um, and the commissioner well, I think she, she's almost cried you know the way mm -hmm. I was coming across you know telling the the sad story and um, so through the redress scream I, I felt comfortable that mm -hmm. I, there was something off my shoulder you could say that I was able to tell someone because I never told my wife, Teresa, we've been married over 40 years now, and those two girls of mine, I never told them all these years, only just recently I, mm -hmm. I, I, I told them, you know, that uh, there's a book coming out and there's going to be some stuff in there that you'll be reading, and, but because I didn't want to upset them, I just didn't want, you know, and that, that was, the, I held all that stuff back 
and um, and and, uh, and so I'm now free of that sort of thing, and, uh, and I didn't want um, uh, the two girls, you know, just mm-hmm. um, worrying about uh, you know about dad, you know, mm-hmm. about the what happened in the, the days of young boys and girls in these institutions. And I'm, 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 I just pray to God that there's never ever institutions set up in, in a future future generations, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, like that, you know, because they're just they're just not worth it, you know. They just, uh, it, 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 I don't know how it came about uh, for the Commonwealth, for state government about caring for young boys and girls, and we've got to set up these sort of places, you know. And then they're run by yeah. the churches and by other denominations, you know, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, when I found out that um, uh, that I had family, I only just found out, well, I was at Clontar, there was another institution down the road called Sister Kate's, and there were some of my brothers and sisters there. They didn't even know I was in Clontar, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know it two miles away, they were down there. You know, so you can see under the native welfare um, arrangements that... Um, you, you, I don't know. I, used to, I, just, I had a number called 50. I used to call me 53. Every, every boy had a, a number. And I was 53. And, and instead of calling you, you mm-hmm. Robert, 53, set up to the front. 53, um, come here. 53, and this. You know, so, you know, it, it was just unbelievable. It's you mean. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, I, have to, I have to tell the, these things because um, it's... Uh, it's um, I just don't want to, any other young boy or girl to go through if they haven't got a mum and dad or there's a split up here. Uh, where do you place someone? You know, and, and it was in those days was just place them in an institution, out mm-hmm. of sight, out of mind. I call it, and then that. Yeah. yeah, but you came out of that and you dedicated your life to public service, and a lot of the books about that. You've yeah. got some great yeah. stories there yeah. about your uh, meetings with the various political parties as well, which I'll. I'll leave that for people to read the book. But now you're retired, and you still seem you seem busier than ever in retirement. I am. Uh, well, I uh, because of um, I build up a good uh, reputation and, and a relationship with the community. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love my community, especially the Aboriginal side of it, because um, I've worked in Aboriginal affairs for a long, long time. When the native welfare was abolished, uh, I received two cabinet appointments in 1980. One was to be the full-time chairman and administrator to run Aboriginal housing in this state, alongside with the State Housing Commission. Then I received another cabinet appointment, a statutory board called the Aboriginal Lands Trust, which uh, had 28 million hectares of land for the benefit and use for Aboriginal purpose people. Mm-hmm. Those housing land fit quite nicely with me, and I, and I was uh, the minister, so I reported to 11 housing ministers and 11 Aboriginal fair ministers over many, many years, you know. To advise them on policy, mm-hmm. where we were going with land land acquisition, uh, divestment of lands, with housing. Uh, we set up the village housing programs in these remote communities that never had housing uh, in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it wasn't until 1972 that the State Housing Commission in this state took on responsibility for Aboriginal housing. It was always the native welfare that built these tin shacks, we call mm-hmm. it, uh, on native reserves and that sort of thing. So I went about deliberately um, getting myself involved with the hierarchy of that organisation, especially the State Housing Mob, with their commissioners and their general manager, it was called in those days, that I've been appointed. I've got, mm-hmm. I I got a board of 12 people, 
and we set up a, a, a framework of, of not only in policy, it's how we deal with addressing issues in these remote communities, town reserves, Aboriginal housing itself, you know. And Aboriginal people weren't making the application for the public housing. You know, they weren't, and so I set up a dual listing to make sure that when it came to Aboriginal housing getting in our properties, the State Housing Commission also had them listed for their uh, whatever properties mm -hmm. had come up, you know. Spot purchase, home ownership, uh, evictions were high if Aboriginal people were being evicted from property. Where do they go? Well, naturally they would uh, go out into the street, go and shack up in someone else's house, and then all of a sudden the state housing bloke will come around and say, well, this mob shouldn't be in, in this house, and, and you're going to you keep them there, and then you're up for eviction. Yeah? So I had to try and change that. That, that whole thing with the uh, with the hierarchy of the State Housing mm -hmm. Commission got access to their Board of Commission meetings, but the most of all, the ministers were my boss, not them. And I wanted I put a foot in the door, yeah, that I had my foot in the door rather than a wadula, we call a white person, getting their foot in the door and said, oh, we know all about uh, the Aboriginal people in this state and uh, they don't want <laughs> this and they want this and all this sort of thing. I, I was able to change that about. So 1980 is when I really got uh, involved in in my uh, yep. liberations of Aboriginal affairs in, in, in WA, of course. And um, and then I was able to sit on the Aboriginal Medical Service. We set that up in, in the mid-70s. Became its president. I'm a life member of that organisation. But the Medical Service was a, a unique program because um, while we set it up in, in the first one in Perth, uh, was that um, I was challenged as a president of that organisation by the Minister for Health and uh, the Public Health Commissioner that uh, setting up an Aboriginal medical service was not the right way to go and, um, and almost telling me to cease, you know, to shut it down. And I said, no. I said, um, I will meet with, uh, with the Minister himself, I can remember his name, and the Commissioner, and I did that and walked into the Minister's office. There were three Commissioners sitting there and he, the Minister just came straight out and says, why are you setting up an alternative uh, gen general practitioner type service? And I said, well, if these people did your job, where Aboriginal people were made to wait, you know, made to wait at the hospitals and clinics for a long time, they will come out and they will complain that uh, I wanted to see the doctor, but I was left last. Uh, in, you know, another, so that someone out, uh, the white person was getting in, getting in the door all the time. And today, I have, uh, there's 150 Aboriginal medical service right across Australia, and there's Fantastic. a lot. Quite, a, I think there's 15 here in WA now. Yeah, I just said to them, uh, we, we're going to keep this um, uh, operating medical service. They'll spring up all over the place. I thought they was going to sack me because I was a, I was a health worker in mm -hmm. those days. You know, before 1980, uh, I, I came an Aboriginal health worker and got involved in Aboriginal health. You know, so you've got to talk to people mm -hmm. and, and change the thinking that um, that if other people are, are, are talking about Aboriginal people, which, which they shouldn't be, about their culture and heritage mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing, about their lives, they never went through that experience, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it wasn't until 1967 when the referendum we were allowed to vote, you know. We weren't even properly citizens of this country, you could say, you know, so all that has changed now because the black right movement and the civil rights movement in this country led by Charlie Perkins and many others, are, um, we, were, we were hitting home very hard about, about how they address Aboriginal affairs in, in the state federal and state governments. We were lucky that we met people like Fred Hollows, a well-known eye mm -hmm. surgeon from Sydney, I've stayed with him for a few days, 
we were able to put pressure on state and federal governments, you know, where the funding should come from about eye programs, health, setting up these medical services. Prevention was the, was the, the name of, the, of, the, of, this, of this health scheme, prevention. So make sure the, the, the babies were immunised and all that sort of thing. And, um, and, and the attitude of people in these major hospitals in that day when they, when uh, someone goes into the hospital and let's say they had gangrene, you know, and the doctors are standing at the end of the bed and say, well, uh, we're going to operate on this person. Well, that under tribal law some, in some of these areas, they, they, they don't know about that. You know? mm -hmm. But you had to get an interpreter servicer in to say, look, the doctor needs to operate and may have to amputate the leg, but at least in their language, they speak their dialect, you know, and one um, guy and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it doesn't cool, calm the person down, but that's the way uh, we, we did it, by setting up the Aboriginal interpreter service in the medical service in 1977-8. I got funding for $20,000, uh, so we can employ an Aboriginal interpreter, an uh, officer to run, the, run that little section. And, um, and uh, Teresa, my wife, was able to do that. And, um, and the main purpose of the interpreter service also was to, use, to be used in hospitals, in prisons and in the courts. So when an Aboriginal person fronts the court and they don't understand what the magistrate or the judge is saying, you broke our law, the Aboriginal person could say, well, our law says, well, you have punishment too, if, you know, and, uh, and the judge will turn around and say, I'm sorry, there's only one law in this country and this is it, you know? Mm -hmm. So you had to have a interpreter alongside a person in the courts, hospitals and in the prisons, you know? And that's worked very successfully and it still is around today, yeah? Wonderful. So I can go on and on with, um, right for all these year, decades, um, how I managed to um, have influence, mm -hmm. empowerment, I call it in some way, um, not only in government policy, in Aboriginal affairs, um, just being a person that talked to the police, talked to that organisation, talked to universities, talked to people who really are interested in the welfare of our First Nations people, you know, and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And that's how I came about. I learned off non-Aboriginal people, their values, their ways, mm -hmm. they got a lot out of me, and then that's how I was able to be um, headhunted, you could say, to sit on boards and committees, and I give it my shot because I, 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 I listen to them, they listen to me, and I'm able to tell a story. Yeah, you know? and that's what this book's all about. You know, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a good and the bad of uh, things in, in our in my life, but um, yeah, I wasn't going to sit back for the rest of my journey in my, on, on Earth here and have that hanging in my over my head in my mind mm -hmm. that uh, I couldn't do anything. Yeah. You know? But I did something to change this whole thing, you know. Done a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and no, I've done it. And I, um, because Teresa, my wife, has been a great ally, my wife. Mm -hmm. And um, she's been a nurse for 50 years now. Yeah. And uh, she's been recognised with the Order of Australia. I've received quite a, of these awards myself, but I didn't ask for them. But people follow you, they watch you, mm -hmm. and they say, gee, that guy there, or that lady there, she's do wonderful things, and people start talking to other people and say, oh, let's nominate Blow Joe Blow and the NAIDOC Awards and all that sort of thing, you know. So there you are. I, um, I, um, I'm very proud of my career. Uh, you should that be. I was, yes. I'm able to give something back to, to the community. Mm -hmm. And um, if anyone wanted advice from me, I would give it to them. I wouldn't shy away from that. And that's why 
our mob, the Noongar people, there's 30,000 of us mm-hmm. in the metropolitan area, in the southwest, in the Great Southern. It's fair, that's our population, you know? And um, you get to know the families, and um, and they all re- you respect them. They all respect you, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and see, el- elders never came into play until about twenty years ago. The word elder didn't come into play. It was just Aboriginal leader, something like that, you know. And that's one thing I never set myself up as a as a uh, leader, an elder. But um, someone had to be a spokesperson mm-hmm. because when the media contact you, whether it's uh, print media or whatever, television and that, they would say, oh, go to Robert Isaacs. Uh, he, <laughs> he knows about, uh, he's very knowledgeable about this and get a response back about about land issues or not native title, mainly land rights, <laughs> you know, and, and that sort of thing. And if you had the, the subject, you knew the subject, then you can speak in the microphone and yeah. address it and intercommit it's, in the, it's on the news and the press, you know. Dr. Robert Isaacs, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish we could continue this because I know we could talk for a lot longer. Your book is called? Two Cultures, One Story. And it's out now by, you'll say it a lot better than me, Magabala. Magabala. Magabala yes. Books, there you go, did that well. Um, it's on the internet and all, is it? Yeah, yeah but you're all good bookstores. Right across Australia. You've been a wonderful neighbour this weekend as well, mm. and best of luck on that drive home. Yep. Could you leave us with a song choice that we can play for you? Uh, there's a song like Tony Hatch and Jackie Trent called The Two of Us. Now, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's, it's on the hit list, I call it. We can find it's that for you. It's a great song. It goes back to 30 years ago. But they were, they're songwriters, you know. But The Two of Us is a beautiful ballet, you know. Uh, we'll always be together, yeah. the two of us. You know? Tony Hatch and Jackie Trent. We'll play that for you. Yeah. Dr. Robert Isaacs, <laughs> thank you so much. The two of us, there'll always be for you and me, the two of us, we'll always be together like the cat and the queen, for we're in a dream of our own, we'll go it alone, there's just the two of us, and we'll be always traveling on. Our love will always stay between the two of us It doesn't matter if the skies are cloudy and grey We're happy away from the storm We're cosy and warm It's just the two of us And we'll be always travelling on And 
Barry Devola is a journalist and author born and bred in Sydney, currently living in Perth. He writes regularly for the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Financial Review and Qantas magazine. He was a senior writer for Rolling Stone Australia, the longtime music critic for Who, and his work has appeared internationally in Rolling Stone, Spin, Entertainment Weekly, Monocle and other magazines. Driving Stevie Fracasso is his first novel, but he has published eight other books, four non-fiction books, three children's books, and a book of short fiction. He has won the Margaret River Short Story Prize, the FAW Jennifer Burbridge Award, the Cowley Literary Award, and the Banjo Patterson Award for short fiction three times. Although he plays in three bands in two cities, he has been informed not to give up his day job. Barry Devola, thank you so much for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage. It's wonderful to be here in The Quiet Carriage. It's very peaceful. <laughs> it is, it is, isn't it? You live in Perth now. Now I do. Um, I'm a Sydney boy, born and bred, lived yeah. there my whole life. And uh, I'm married to a girl who was originally from Perth. Uh -huh. um, and you know what they say, that eventually all Perth girls swim back upstream. Back Do to they Perth, say that? <laughs> and they drag their husband with them. But I'm loving it. In yeah? Perth. Yeah, I really am. Brilliant. It's, it's a long way from a lot of places I love, like New York City, which yes. we might talk about in a minute because my book's based a lot there. But yes. um, I mean, I'm just finding, especially the literary scene here is um, incredible for the population. The bookstores, because I've been visiting bookstores repeatedly, I've mm -hmm. been to all of them twice. So many of them so supportive of local authors and people that work in bookstores here just love books. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not always a given, mm -hmm. um, but here they really do. And so I'm really appreciative of, of what they're doing with Driving Stevie Fracasso. Let's talk about it. Let's. It's out now via Harper. It's been riding high on my TBR list for some time, but I haven't got round to it. I've had too many books and prep to do, unfortunately, but I am going to get round to it because it had me at the Nick Hornby Aha. comparison. You're a Nick I, Hornby I'm fan. I'm a very big fan. High Fidelity fan? Yes, all of it. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? I can. Here's my elevator pitch. Yes, please. <laughs> Driving Stevie Fracasso is about two brothers who haven't seen each other in almost 30 years and they find themselves stuck together in a stolen 1985 Nissan stanza yeah. driving from Austin, Texas to New York City yeah. in the days leading up to 9-11. Right. And so the two brothers, one brother is Rick, and he's this jaded New York music journalist who's just hit rock bottom in the previous 24 hours. He lost his only paying writing gig. He lost his long-term girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And as a result of number two, he lost his lease on the apartment, which yeah. is probably the worst thing out of those three if you live in New York. Yeah. But he's thrown this lifeline to write a book about Stevie Fracasso, who's this former frontman of a cult band from the late 70s called Driven to Distraction. Mm -hmm. They were set to be a big thing and they blew their chances spectacularly in 1980 in the worst possible way. It derailed his career and it pretty much derailed his life. Stevie 
is Rick's brother that he hasn't seen in 30 years. So See. this story follows them as they drive from Austin to New Orleans, mm. up through Mississippi to Memphis and Nashville, and then up to Philadelphia and finally into New York as the planes hit wow. the Twin Towers. So they're trying to piece together their fractured, broken lives just as New York's pretty much yeah. suffering the worst thing that's happened there yeah. ever. So why America? I mean, is that trip one that you, you know well, Austin, New York? Those cities, yeah. I've, I've travelled Highway 61 from New Orleans up to Nashville and I've visited all the cities that are in the book. Um, but the inspiration for the book was manyfold. One was music because I'm a journalist and I'm a music journalist yes. primarily. Yeah. So I know music really well. I've interviewed a lot of musicians and I kind of know that world. So I wasn't exactly writing what I know because these characters are completely fictional, but the world that they live in is a world that I know. And another element was New York City, which is my favourite city and I would say one of my favourite things. Yeah. <laughs> Not just city, it's one of my favourite things. I travel there every year. Since 1991, I've travelled there every year, apart from COVID years, Yeah, as long as these are going to last. For work or for, for holiday? Both. Yep. started off as, as just I was obsessed with it and mm -hmm. just wanted to spend as much time there as I could. Mm -hmm. And without actually living there, I'd just visit for three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time. These days I've got kids, so it's less time. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, yes, to answer your question, I started writing about it. And I write travel stories, I interview musicians, I write about stores, I write about neighbourhoods, I write about gentrification. I write about everything to do with the city. Uh, I'm mainly a writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, mm. but I also write for the Qantas magazine, mm -hmm. Australian Financial Review. I used to be a senior editor, a senior contributor to Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. So I'm freelance, but there's certain things I write for regularly. So driving Stevie Fracasso is in some ways a, my love letter to yeah. New York City and what happened there. Um, in 2001, because I was there a yeah. week after it happened. Wow. So I got to experience yeah. New Yorkers pretty much dented and softened by what had happened and wanting to talk about it. Yeah. So if, every night I go to Union Square and just watch people trying to deal with what had happened. Why has it happened? How has it happened? What's going to happen next? Because, you know, there was all this talk in the air about war, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just would sit there and listen to people and talk to people. And I thought, one day I'll do something with this. 20 years later, yeah, yeah, here it is. It's couched <laughs> in this story about brothers and family and love um, and yeah. music. Yeah. So you're a career writer, but this is your first fiction novel. Why, why the wait? I mean, has there been a few false starts? Or Yeah, good question. Why the wait? I guess I finally pulled my finger out. I've written, it's my ninth book but it's my first full-length novel. I had a book of short fiction, a collection of short fiction. Okay. So that's my second book of fiction. But being a journalist, of course, I was writing non-fiction books. I wrote a book about music fandom. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book about backpackers. I traveled with backpackers for a month right. and wrote The Secret Life of Backpackers. Almost killed me. Um, <laughs> I wrote about toy collecting, actually, and, and the nature of collecting. So I've written about all sorts of different things. I've written three kid, kids' alphabet books, one about metal, one about country, and oh, one about punk. Oh, that's on our shelf. 
The it metal is. book. You've yes. got kids. Yes. All oh, right. Got two. And we've got the M is for metal. Correct. Book. I was going to ask you, will Still there be more of them? Still my best seller. Are you serious? Seriously. <laughs> I don't know why I'm writing novels. <laughs> I should write more alphabet rhyming books. Still, the most quoted, quoted line from my work is A is for Angus, whose riffs are a hit. He's a grown man in a schoolboy outfit. There you go. I mean, I'm never going to top that. It's all downhill. I should just give up now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but anyway. Uh, the answer to your question uh, about are there going to be any more, uh, I actually talked to Paul McNeil recently and they're re-releasing them in a box set right, soon yep. with extra artwork that Paul, the illustrator, is doing. We talked about doing a lot. We had so many ideas. We were mm. going to do one completely about Dylan. We were going to do mm. one. It was going to be called Positively Alphabet Street. Um, we were <laughs> going to do one about the Beatles. Um, there were so many ideas, but, um, yeah, we, we decided to stop at three. Who knows? One day okay. we might do them again. Yeah. Um, Paul is in Tasmania now and I live here, so we couldn't get much further apart. But we'll see what exactly. happens. And will there be any more adult fiction? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm already working on another novel and, and also a uh, kids' middle grade fiction. So how old are your kids now? Five and two. They'll, they'll probably get to Coming read it. By, to by it. the time yeah, I finish it, yeah. they'll be ready to read it. <laughs> uh, so yes, but I have an adult fiction novel in the works um, that's completely different to this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's novels for me now. After this experience with Driving Stevie Fracasso, I just have got the bug. And every idea that I now come up with, I, I think, how can I turn that into a novel? Yeah. And uh, so that's the plan from here on in. And you're still playing music? I am. Mm -hmm. I'll give, can I give my band a free plug? Please do. We could play them if you like, because I was actually after this going to ask you to leave us with the song. Ah, right. So as long as it's on Spotify. Well, actually, no, because we're just a covers band. Oh, right. But we? uh, we're called Radio Radio, which is named after an Elvis Costello song. I'm a huge Elvis Costello fan. We do power pop, new wave, post-punk stuff. Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, Nick Lowe, Squeeze, The Jam, The Clash, all that Sounds that great. kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, we play around town um, mm -hmm. just for fun. Great. Uh, definitely not giving up my day job. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's good fun playing with them. I love Brilliant. it. Brilliant. Well, your novel, Driving Steve Fricasso, is out now via HarperCollins. Enjoy the rest of your fest. Which song did you want, to, want us to play then to go out with? Uh, there's a great song that uh, is really associated with the book and it's by the Weaker Thans and it's called mm -hmm. Sun in an Empty Room and they're a Canadian band and uh, the song really is based on a, an Edward Hopper painting and I've got a scene in my book where Rick as a little kid is looking at that painting in the Museum of Modern Art with his father and something happens that haunts him and comes back to haunt him 30 years wow. later. And the painting's called Sun in an Empty Room, and this song by the Weaker Thans is inspired by it, and it's called Sun in an Empty Room. Fantastic, and I love Edward Hopper. The picture that we have for The Quiet Carriage is actually an Edward Hopper picture. It ties in so perfectly, I cannot believe it. Barry, thank you so much. A total pleasure being here in The Quiet Carriage. Turn
Listening to the Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network. And we've been broadcasting to you from the Margaret River Writers Festival. And the track we heard there was The Weaker Dance, Sun in an Empty Room. And that was the choice of Barry DeVillo, who was speaking to us about his novel, Driving Steve Fricasso. And before that, we had uh, the track Jackie Trent and Tony Hatch, The Two of Us. And that was a song selection of Robert Isaacs, Dr. Robert Isaacs, who was talking to us about his memoir, Two Cultures, One Story, which is out now on Magabala Books. And before him, it was, we're talking with Craig Sylvie, author of Honeybee. And his song selection was Ray Charles with Georgia on My Mind. And that is all we have time for today. Uh, Please join us next week for the final installation that I'm going to be bringing to you from Margaret River Writers Festival. Until next time, keep reading.